Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Philippians chapter 2. Hopefully you are one of the grateful ones that can rejoice in the person and work of Christ this morning. As we look at Philippians chapter 2, it was actually a few weeks ago now that we started into a new section of Philippians where Paul begins to explain that the Philippian believers must have a mindset that is committed to corporate unity. Remember, Gospel Mindset, Chapter 1, Unified Mindset, Chapter 2. And in order for a church like the Church of Philippi or Colonial Baptist Church to enjoy a unified mindset, Paul uh, begins to uh, describe some essential characteristics that must be true. First, we must be humble. We must have a humility of mind, as he says at the beginning of chapter 2, and then he illustrates it in the person of Jesus Christ. We must be humble as Christ was humble, as individual believers in this church, if we're going to be unified. Then secondly, uh, two Sunday nights ago, uh, I started into, uh, from Philippians 2, 12, through the end of the chapter, we must also be selfless. We must be selfless. Paul calls the church to selflessness in, in verses 12 through 18, but then he illustrates it just like he did with a hum, humility in the life of Christ. He illustrates selflessness by looking at Timothy and Epaphroditus, and that's what we're going to see next week. But in verses 12 through 18, in this call to selflessness, he gives us three commands. I think that the, the, the main message of verses 12 through 18 can really be seen in these three commands. If you're looking in your Bible... At the end of verse 12, you find the first command where he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So we're to work out this selflessness. Then the second command is found in verse 14 when Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And then the third command is found in verse 18, where Paul says, Likewise, you also, and I'd prefer actually for it to be translated, must. You must be glad and rejoice with me. And so Paul's call to selflessness revolves around these three commands. Uh, Two Sunday nights ago, we took some time right before the Lord's table to look at verses 12 and 13. And the, the command for believers to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling, right? Before the presence of God is we are in reverence and awe of Him and aware of our own weakness, our own sinful nature. We need to work out our salvation. And we are equipped to do so because God's at work in us, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. You remember any of this? It's been a while. You remember... There's no magic elevator. Do you hear that, Sonny? There's no magic elevator in Christian growth, but it's the stairs. We've got to take the stairs. It's difficult and trying. But this morning, we come to the first specific area where Paul expects us to work out our own salvation. Look in verse 14. He says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, this is not the area that I probably would have chosen if I were writing an epistle 
as the first specific area in which believers should work out their own salvation. But Paul knows better than I. Okay, And of course, the Holy Spirit is leading him to do this because he emphasizes in this command the essential nature of selflessness. This is what it looks like. We can do all things without grumbling or disputing. So if you're taking notes by way of outline this morning, my first point is the essential nature of selflessness. And the subpoint letter A is the command to be selfless. Look at verse 14. Again, it says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. This is the, the first or the second command that he gives in this text. In verse 14, Paul deals comprehensively with how we talk. Uh, Because he knows that grumbling and disputing come from people who are dissatisfied with God and his provision. And people who are most concerned with their own things. Specifically, he says here in this this imperative, he says we are to do all things, right? We got to draw attention to that, don't we? Don't you wish that kind of wasn't there? Do all things. This means everything that we strive to do as believers should be done without grumbling or disputing. This means every dimension of life, every moment of our day is important. And there are two ways in which we must check our fleshly tendency to sin with our mouths. He says, first, we must not grumble. That means that we should not be guilty of whispering complaints against other people in our family or in our church or in our church leadership. It's interesting to me, this word for grumble is a word that Paul doesn't use very often at all. He only uses it here. And he uses a related word to it one time in 1 Corinthians 10.10. Okay, so this is not a word he uses often, so he must have got it somewhere, right? Well, if you begin nosing around and doing a little bit of research, I I believe that Paul gets this word from his Old Testament scriptures. And as Paul is writing this part of the letter, I believe that he's probably imagining Israel under Moses' leadership in the Old Testament. Because the word for grumbling here is found often in the Greek version of the Old Testament. And Moses uses it frequently in the books of Exodus and Numbers to describe a generation of people who were grumbling and complaining about just just about everything. They were grumbling about, you know, they didn't have the right food. They're grumbling about the fact that they didn't have water or not enough of it. They're grumbling about their leadership, Moses and Aaron. They grumbled as well about God. You see, that generation kept grumbling and complaining. They kept ringing the bell. So Moses uses this word grumbling of them frequently. But this word is also used a few times in the New Testament, the word grumbling. And two of these in particular drew my attention as I was doing study. One of them is found in Acts 6 in verse 1. You don't have to turn there. You might make a note and perhaps you remember the context where there were some of the Hellenists who were grumbling about the fact that their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. 
Okay, and so I think that begins to, see, to, to show us that there were some people who were grumbling or complaining that in the early church, some people were being neglected. Another text you could write down is Peter, in one of his epistles, says that we should show hospitality without grumbling. So it's a rare word, but Peter uses it there for the way we should show hospitality to people. You ever getting ready for someone to come over to the house? You're doing all the chores, cleaning up all the stuff, putting all the things away in the closets or wherever we put them. And you begin to complain. Why in the world? Why in the world did my husband have the idea to invite the entire church over here? You know, what in the world? Why does it have to be today? And we start grumbling, right? That's the picture of this word. We should not show hospitality while grumbling. So Paul says here, do all things without grumbling. But then he he lists this other one, do all things without disputing. This word speaks of a heated verbal exchange when conflicting ideas are expressed. That's a standard definition for this word. A heated verbal exchange when conflicting ideas are expressed. This word disputings is used in the Gospels in Luke chapter 9, and there it's translated by the ESV translators as arguments. If you remember the setting of Luke 9, the disciples were arguing, grumbling with each other, complaining with each other, and it leads to disputes over who would be the greatest in the kingdom. So Christ has to confront them about their selfishness and self-centeredness. We, however, must not engage in grumbling and disputing in our lives. Moment of pastoral application here. I think too many of us are prone to such behavior in our, in our families and in our church. And, and I, I'm afraid that many times we don't think it's a big deal to complain or to get in petty arguments with each other. We may say this, boys and girls... When you decide to argue and complain against your brothers or sisters in your home, you're not obeying this command. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And men and women, when we fill emails, texts, tweets, and posts with grumbling about some aspect of our church, the pastoral care, the preaching, other members here, We're not obeying this command. We too must do all things without murmuring or disputing. But then you might ask the question, why? Why is it such a big deal? Why do I need to do that? Well, you know, one answer is it's commanded in the scripture. But then what Paul does is he's writing to the Philippians is he gives them two reasons why they must do all things without grumbling or disputing. And so, uh, as you uh, are filling in notes, let it be, the reasons why being selfless is important. There are two of them. In verse 15, um, it, it is so that we might impact the world. Look with me in verse 15. It says, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in this world. 
First, obeying the command of God to do everything without grumbling or disputing is important because such behavior will enable us to impact the world. The text says that we are to do these things in order that we, and he describes them three ways, that we might be blameless, innocent, and children of God without blemish. See, Paul uses three adjectives to describe the character that the Philippian believers should have and the character that they will attain if they're able to do everything without grumbling or disputing. More specifically, this must be our reputation to the world. They should have no good reason to blame us, no impurity, no moral blemish that they could point at in the church and say, They're not a child of God. Well, looking at those three adjectives, blameless, innocent, and without blemish, could be a very important thing to do this morning. There's something that I feel that is perhaps even more important, and that is to see why, or to realize why, having that sort of reputation is critical. Paul says in Philippians 2 here in verse 15, that this exemplary behavior of ours will be in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. You see that in your Bible? Crooked and twisted generation. And the question I have about that phrase again for us is where did Paul get this one? Where did Paul get this opinion of the culture that surrounded him? Was this just something that he came up with because he was bitter, he's in prison, they're all twist, they're, they're twisted and crooked people. Or was this something he just, you know, uh, he, he came up with because he had a hard time as an apostle relating to normal people in the world? Well, let's look at that. Where did Paul get this phrase? Uh, one of my favorite ways to study the New Testament is to see when the New Testament refers to the Old Testament in quotations or allusions. And I want to suggest that where Paul gets this phrase is from the Old Testament. At the very end of the Pentateuch, the first five books of your Bible, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses ends with a powerful song. And in Deuteronomy 32, in this song, Moses describes the wickedness of the children of Israel during his day. He writes this, Deuteronomy 32, 5. Listen, they have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children. See the word children. Because they're blemished. Blemished. But then notice the next phrase. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Same exact phrase. As Moses of old, godly Moses, meek Moses, near the end of his life, closes out the Pentateuch, he describes the people around him as a crooked and twisted generation. This is where Paul got this phrase. But Paul's not the only one to use it. This uh, this word, generation, was used often in the Scriptures by Jesus Christ himself. A quick study of the word generation. It's found 33 times in your New Testament Bible. And of the 33 occurrences, 17 of them are found in the Synoptic Gospels coming from the mouth of Jesus. You see, Jesus often in his preaching described his own generation as being crooked or evil or wicked. Jesus uses this concept as well. 
But Jesus isn't the only one in the New Testament to use this concept. Simon Peter does. If you remember Acts chapter 2, as Peter is preaching at Pentecost, he preaches a powerful sermon to the Jewish people. And by the end, 3,000 people are saved and added to the church. That would be a great service, wouldn't it? And as Luke, in the book of Acts, writes down what Peter did in his sermon, he says this, Luke, or Acts chapter 2, And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Now here's a part of Peter's sermon, quote, Save yourself from this crooked generation. End quote. And so Paul is in good company here, isn't he? Moses, Christ, Peter, before him, warned people about the crooked and perverse condition of their own generation. And I want to make another application here. I think this should inform our understanding of the culture in which we live and find ourselves today as well. Too many times believers feel that the culture is generally good or, you know, normally it's like a neutral thing. In particular, sometimes young people feel that parents and grandparents are being way too unrealistic about the current condition of culture. They, they've lost touch. You know, it's, mom, it's not as bad as you think. Or it's like, it's like neutral. But in God's wisdom, he gave the Psalms like Psalm number 14 that describes the condition of this world. He gave us texts like Romans 1 that remind us that there's no one who does good. No, not one. They've all gone aside. They've all strayed. And in God's wisdom, believing in the neutrality or goodness of our culture is becoming harder and harder for believers to maintain in our own country. Isn't it? Instead, it's becoming obvious again that humanity is crooked. That word means perverse. Morally perverse. And they're twisted. Comes right out of Philippians here. Twisted generation, which means that they are morally confused or depraved. Perhaps we can sense this in our own culture when they begin to demand treating people not according to the way that God created them, but according to the way that person feels or how they might identify themselves. Twisted. Perhaps a moral and perverse culture of our generation is, is visible when they think that it's actually hateful for us to attempt to stop young men and women from taking the lives of innocent babies. And so they think we are the hateful ones, we believers are the hateful ones, and not the ones who are destroying and dismembering innocent lives. I mean, what sort of culture do we live in when the main candidates for the highest office in our country are crooked and perverse? Outside the church, people are depraved, warped and crooked, but instead of complaining and grumbling about it, Paul demands that we live differently, without grumbling, without disputing with each other, so that, now look back in your Bible again, 
so that we might shine as stars in the midst of these people. So we might shine as stars in the midst of these people. So the reason why we must not, we must not grumble and quarrel with each other. The reason why we can't complain very much about our culture. The reason why we need to clean up our conversations is it will cause us to impact the world. You know, there, there are all sorts of books out there on evangelism. Like, self-proclaimed experts selling books on, you know, if you do it this way and you talk to lost people this way, you cast your net this way, it's going to work. Or, no, no, you don't do it that way, but you do it this way. I have never seen a book where someone said, I've got a great way for the, wor- for the church to impact the world. Here it is. The best form of evangelism is that we would just all get along. That we wouldn't grumble and complain and sin with our mouths. That we wouldn't argue and dispute with each other. And when we can live in that way, it will shine forth as stars in the midst of this wicked culture. I remember many years ago now, I went shopping for an engagement ring for my wife, Carissa. I went into all sorts of shops looking for a ring that would work. And I wish I could say that cost was... No concern of mine. But you have to remember, I was a poor Bible college student at the time. So I was looking for a deal. I remember going into one shop. It it could have been named like Diamonds and Stuff or something like that. (laughs) I remember going in there and uh, it was in the middle of a retail store and there was one display case of rings. So it took me a while to find someone. I finally found a teenager to show me over to the case and I said, I want to look at that ring. And and that's when I noticed that the case wasn't even locked. It was open. I could have showed myself the ring. I probably could have taken it. So I looked at that. Teenager got the the ring, kind of threw it up on the counter. You know, compare that experience to where I actually bought the ring for my wife. I remember going into the place. The whole place was elegant. Remember going in, you stepped into the front door onto some carpet, and you sunk down in about three or four inches carpet was plush. I remember going up to the woman selling the diamonds and asked her to see a ring and in a hushed tone she confirmed which, which oh that ring okay then she went and got the large keychain of keys and she opened it up and then she did something really interesting. Before she took that ring and put it on the counter she opened up the door and she pulled out a piece of black material a black velvet cloth. And she put it right on the center, right on top of the case. She took the ring out that I ended up buying. And she put it right in the center of the black cloth. And then she didn't say anything. She didn't have to. I surmised later, I think just about every light in the entire room must have been pointed to that one spot. (laughs) Because that, that ring shone brightly. Why did she put that black cloth there? To accent the beauty of the diamond, right? Against the pagan backdrop of this culture, satisfied believers will shine forth as stars. Perhaps you've been discouraged with the times. Men and women, we cannot be grouchy people. 
who take the Facebook and start complaining about everything in our country, our culture. Instead, we must be people satisfied with Christ who shine forth in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And so we do this to impact the world. Secondly, we obey this command to enrich those who minister to us. It's verse 16. Verse 16 in your Bible, Philippians 2, in case you lost sight. Philippians 2, 16 says, Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So number two is to enrich those who minister to us. Not only will our good spiritual conduct impact the world, it will support or encourage the work of those who minister for us. And as the Philippians are holding forth the word that gives life, Paul will have reason to boast or to be proud when he's judged by God. Occasionally, sometimes in Paul's ministry, he'll briefly consider the thought of running or laboring in vain. But the thought of empty living for Paul and empty ministry was utterly repulsive. He didn't want to stand before God someday and have nothing to give to him. And so if the Philippians portray Christ's likeness in their integrity and reach people by holding forth the word of life, by not grumbling and complaining, then Paul's reward will be great in the day of Jesus Christ. You want to encourage your preachers, your ministers? Don't grumble and complain. And shine forth in the midst of this culture. Because that will mean fruit for us later. So I'm now 40 years old. I've begun contemplating the shortness of my own life and ministry. And I sure hope, pray, that I invest in something that brings fruit for Jesus. And I felt several months ago, I made a strategic decision to come be a part of Colonial Baptist Church with my family. And I trust that by God's good grace... Enable us to do this, and one day I'll be able to stand before the Lord and smile and rejoice in the years in this church and your commitment to shine as stars in the midst of this culture. The essential nature of selfishness is doing all things without grumbling or disputing. If and when we do that, we'll impact the world. It will enrich our ministers of the gospel. But that leads me to my second and final point with my... Final 10 minutes here. The third command is found in verses 17 and 18, especially verse 18. I call, number two, I call this the deepest expression of selflessness. Saw the essential nature, but here's its deepest expression. You want to know if you're selfless? Verses 17 and 18, Paul calls for them to rejoice in Christ while enduring great suffering and affliction. The deepest expression. Look at verse 17. It says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, also, you must be glad and rejoice with me. In verse 17, Paul again considers the possibility of martyrdom. The fact that he might not make it. He uses this illustration. He says, I'm 
like a drink offering being poured upon the more substantial offering or sacrificial offering of your faith. I think he's using an Old Covenant analogy. A drink offering would be used in the Old Testament, be something that would be poured upon, a liquid offering that would be poured upon or over, something like a burnt offering or a grain offering. It was seen as being something that was perhaps less substantial. So Paul, in a moment of humility here, he's describing the Philippians' own life, something more substantial than his own. Okay? Even if I am now in the process of being poured out as this liquid offering upon the more substantial offering of your faith, then Paul closes with something that for me, for me was a bit difficult to understand. At the end of verse 17 and verse 18, he keeps using a word for rejoice or joy. He uses it four times. He says, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you must be glad and rejoice with me. The words glad and rejoice are actually coming from the same word. It could be translated, I, I rejoice and rejoice with you. Likewise, also, you should rejoice and rejoice with me. And so for Paul, four times, Paul uses this word. What does it mean? At the end of verse 17, I would take three words and I would put right next to those first two occurrences. And the words I would put there are Paul's present disposition towards suffering and death for Christ. Paul's present disposition is, I rejoice and rejoice with you all. If I were to put three words next to the third and the fourth occurrence, or verse 18 in your Bibles, I would put the, the three words, Paul's demanded expectation. For Paul demands or expects the same thing from them. You must rejoice and rejoice with me about it as well. Okay, so this is Paul's perspective and his command. And I think that Paul's perspective and his command are challenging to us. Because they express the deepest expression of selflessness. And that is joy even in the midst great affliction. You see, the bottom of what brought happiness to Paul was Christ. There's a contemporary preacher who's spoken on this a few times, and I've heard him speak on this subject. It has forever changed my perspective of joy. John Piper proclaims this concept repeatedly. I think he's probably uh, describing some of the theology of Jonathan Edwards or the writing of C.S. Lewis when he does it. But Piper will often talk about the bottom of our joy. And he'll ask, what is the bottom of our joy? Do you know that all the possible objects or sources of happiness in life, except one, have a deeper foundation? In other words, all objects of our passion or things that we pursue to be happy have a deeper foundation except one, the foundational one. Okay, so uh, kind of painting a picture of something that keeps going down. And at the very base, the foundation is one of two foundations. Let me illustrate this for you. Let's, let's imagine that I went up to some young man in the auditorium this morning and I said, uh, this young man, I says, what, what brings you great joy? And so this young man says, well, I made, I made the all-star team. 
And that brings me joy. So then I would ask him to probe a little bit deeper. Okay, that's what he says. Make the all-star team bring some joy. Why? Why does that make you happy? And so he says, well, to make the all-star game, I'll have a greater chance of getting a scholarship to play collegiate sports. He could have had all kinds of different reasons why making the all-star team could have been helpful to him. It could have been more popular. It could have you know, had more opportunities to serve Christ. I, I may have made more money. You know, ultimately, if I can make something out of this later, he could have all kinds of reasons. But he says that he's, he's happy to make the all-star team because it will give him a college scholarship. And so then I ask, well, why would playing collegiate sports make you happy? And he says, well, hmm, good question. (laughs) Playing collegiate sports would prove that I can be successful at something that requires physical discipline and natural talent. And so I ask, well, why why would proving your discipline and natural talents make you happy? And the young man says, well, I remember when I was younger. I was with my dad, and we met a college basketball player. My dad told me that he admires college players for their discipline. He said, well, why, why would having your dad admire you make you happy? And the boy says something like this. He says, well, because my dad often questions my discipline and self-worth. We're getting a little bit lower here, aren't we? We're getting closer to the foundational premise of this young man's life. And when we get to the bottom, there are only two possibilities. There are two foundational premises upon which you might make much of in this world. You might either, foundation number one, make much out of self or make much out of Christ. Men and women, much of the tension that we experience in our families, in our churches, is because we have dads and wives, children's children or members who are foundationally committed to self. If you penetrate down to what brings them happiness and joy, you get to self. So young women, don't run around looking for acceptance in a relationship with a man. Don't text Don't post, don't scheme to make it happen so that you will be fulfilled. Perhaps there's an elderly person here watching or listening online who's experiencing great physical discomfort and the decline of their body is beginning to discourage them. May May I encourage them to consider what's at the bottom of your joy. Men and women, how could Paul have joy in prison? I mean, how could he have joy at the demise of self? Might die. What foundation enabled Paul to have joy in prison? It was that he would make much out of Christ. And that foundation will change everything for us. So that when things begin to fall out of line with what make make much out of me, it's okay. 
It's okay. Because my joy is foundationally in Him. It's in Jesus. Not my health. Not my acceptance. Not my approval. Not my reputation. Not my college experience. Not my popularity. But Christ. I I think we can learn much about what is at the bottom of our joy by examining what we give our time to. Perhaps you've wasted time this week on objects and people and games and sleep to bring self-pleasure. And you've done very little for Christ. As a family, we're reading through a biography together of Anne and Adoniram Judson. As we read through this book at supper, when we actually have supper together, I've been astounded at their commitment to Christ. Chapter by chapter has gripped me. There have been times I've been reading this book with my family where I've fought back tears just to try to keep reading. But men and women, we are writing our own biographies. Moment by moment, day by day, a book is being written about you, by the choices you make, by what you found your joy in. And what will that book say? I invite you this morning to reject pursuing self and to rejoice in making much out of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the text of Philippians, this call to selflessness. Lord, as believers, sometimes we are so warped that we can even do things for Christ trying to make a name out of ourselves. Lord, you know we make idols of ourselves. And so, Father, I would pray that as we consider what you have for us here, that no matter what might happen in our life, no matter if affliction comes to us or someone we love, we might be able to say with Paul, I rejoice and will rejoice. Because Jesus is proclaimed. We thank you for this, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing, rejoicing in God's grace.